You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Three guests this week, um, three really interesting people. First up, Rhiannon Walker. She covers the Washington football team for The Athletic, was previously a staffer at ESPN's The Undefeated. She's followed by Mike Reese, an NFL reporter for ESPN who covers and reports on all things Patriots. He is followed by Josh Tolentino, who covers the Tampa Bay Rays for The Athletic and previously covered the Packers. Um... There's a lot to cover in this, so um, I I, ho- I hope you listen. Rhiannon Walker talks about obviously what um, the last month has been like for her, uh, sort of processing everything that's been going on in America, covering the Washington team for us, and uh, and how challenging that's been in uh, a pandemic, and then just dealing with some really awful um, things on social media, uh, some pretty incredibly racist. Um, uh, stuff and uh, I think that's an important story for you guys to hear. And then Rhiannon, who's a very very talented writer, sort of about how she sees the business heading forward. She's uh, 27. Mike Reese talks about Cam Newton arriving with the Patriots. That's a major major story on what's already an interesting beat. And I think you'll enjoy hearing Mike Reese on uh, what Cam Newton means as a media person in in, in New England. Uh, last up, Josh Tolentino, who covers the Rays for us, um, and what covering baseball has been like in a pandemic, what covering baseball is like in Florida, and then Josh experienced some pretty horrific anti-Asian xenophobia that he tweeted about, and uh, more than a million people uh, sort of ended up sort of seeing that, a million and a half impressions on his post about dealing with uh, some pretty uh, horrible everyday racism in St. Petersburg. And again, Josh, who's, uh, who's in his mid-20s, uh, talks about where he sees the business heading forward as well. So three really interesting people, three really uh, terrific guests, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Rhiannon Walker covers the Washington football team for The Athletic. Prior to The Athletic, she worked for ESPN's The Undefeated, writing profiles, historical features, covering um, all major sports. Uh, She's a great colleague of mine at The Athletic, and I'm pleased to have Rhiannon Walker join me on the Sports Media Podcast. Rhiannon, good morning. It's a little early, but, uh, but I appreciate you making time for me. Good morning, Richard. Of course, anytime. Anytime you ask for a favor, you've got it, my friend. All right, so here's um, where I want to start. Um, and I've been asking this question of a lot of people uh, who come on this podcast. Uh, it's very open-ended. Um, what has the last month been, been like for you in America? How have you processed what's been going on? Well, you and I have talked about it, and still learning how to process it is a big part of it. It's, it's feeling everything that I feel in the moment, and a lot of how I felt is tired. I mean, I haven't used my social media as much. Um, I believe you probably have an iPhone. If you do, you know how it tells you how much you've used your screen time on Sundays, like week to week. Um, Mine is dipping lower and lower. And 
I just didn't have a desire to be on social media as much, trying to find that balance of being informed about what's going on in the world, but not absolutely exhausted by what's going on in the world at the same time is, is a hard balance to strike because I want to be able to knowledgeably speak about the topics that are currently relevant. And I also want to make sure that I'm keeping my mental and emotional well-being in mind as well, too. We had layoffs at our company, as you know. That was the first time I've been at a company where there was layoffs where I actually knew people. Um, and as an empath, that was extremely difficult. I lost one of my editors. I lost friends that I work with. And that's hard because I'm also keeping in mind the fact that we're in the middle of this global pandemic. We have this high rate of unemployment in the United States. I'm worried about what their next prospects are looking like because just as people, I really enjoyed them. These are people that made me a better person, made me a better reporter, made me a better colleague. And we've lost them and that's hard to deal with. There are people I seriously look forward to seeing when I go on road trips that I'm not going to be seeing anymore. And the concern, of course, like, okay, what are their job prospects going to look like? Now, many could argue that's not my job to worry about, but as their friend and somebody who cares about them, it is something I concern myself with. In addition to the fact that we are really grappling with racism in the United States right now and the breadth of it, the systemic nature of it, that for so long has been ignored. And it's one of those things where I've been to multiple protests and there's so many people that are tired. That was the best. I told you, this is the best that I have felt um, since the Instagram live, since the layoffs. That was one of the things that made me feel better after being pretty exhausted those two weeks was actually being out there and doing something with my frustration, with my anger, sadness, and everything else in between. Because if you can't get anything else accomplished, hopefully this is something that can, something that can create change. And there has been a lot of change that's been created due to the protest of George, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and countless other black people who were killed at the hands of either police brutality or obviously in Ahmaud Aubrey's case, um, vigilante justice. Justice is being used in air quotes and sarcastically here. But it's hard, Richard. I mean, it is one of those things where I've cried to my mother out of frustration because I'm tired. I was crying after I got called the N-word on Instagram Live doing the, um, the program for us at The Athletic. I don't cry very often except for when I am absolutely at my wits end and just watching all of this stuff go down what's frustrating and I know it's a very much it's a much larger existential question but it is so frustrating why can't people possibly put themselves in somebody else's shoes and I have a frustration with that because again as an empath I do that all the time in our line of work I think about these things all the time my life isn't the standard for how things are run it's not hard for me to put myself in someone else's shoes or at least to try to hear what someone else is saying but people countless people come up with these terrible arguments or these weak arguments for why we shouldn't. I mean, I'd look at the Will Kane like argument for NASCAR doing the investigation into the noose and everything else like that. And I'm just sitting here like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm extremely happy Bomani handled that situation because it's one of those mindless, silly, tired arguments that you hear that make absolutely no sense. And why are we arguing about this trivial thing instead of commending NASCAR for a sport that had a Confederate battle flag at its properties from 1948 when it was conceived to when they just got rid of it in the middle of June. Why aren't we commending this organization for taking the necessary steps? It wasn't Bubba Wallace who announced the entire thing. It was the, it was the overall entity itself. They should be applauded because they have worded it differently. Sure. But the overall theme is that the rest of those pools did not look like that. That is a noose. I, I mean, 
it's not an argumentative point. It is a noose. And a spade is a spade. That stuff is tiresome. And people just starting to come around. I'm glad people are coming around. One of the things I say is that think about the fact that you're just realizing some of these major issues that we have in our country with redlining, gerrymandering, um, disabling people's ability to vote through various means. Think about the fact that you're just learning about this, but I've been watching, living this experience my whole entire life. That's 27 years of dealing with this stuff. That's a privilege in and of itself. Explain that, and not in a hostile way, but just to say, like, that is a privilege. You haven't been aware of these things. These things have not affected your life. But these are things that have affected people around me and my life on a regular basis. And so imagine how tired... You're tired right now after a month of protesting. Imagine how tired I am of 27 years of it. But that's how I feel in summation. A lot of things. I feel a lot of things on a regular basis. Uh, I, I, I appreciate... Um... I appreciate you sharing that. So I want to ask you sort of a couple things about that. I know that you have dealt with um, some awful social media posts probably since you've been in the business. And then obviously you had a pretty horrible experience just in terms of uh, of live live chat. Can you – are you comfortable sort of sharing those experiences and just – and what that was like? Obviously something that nobody should ever have to deal with in our business, but obviously – you know, the reality is it does happen, and particularly it happens to women, particularly it happens to women of color. No problem at all. I'd rather people know exactly what it feels like. I remember the first time I, I got, this was an argument not even about sports, but I was working at the undefeated at the time. But basically I said that Frank Ocean has a better catalog than The Weeknd, who, by the way, I'm a huge fan of as well, too. This guy threatened to rape me and called me, excuse me, but a dumb bitch. And he said he was going to find me, and he was going to rape me. There was the time at the 2019 NFL Combine where I was sexually harassed. There was the time where I was at the Undefeated and one of my boss's friends pushed up on me at the NABJ convention at the party and I turned around. I don't like that at all and I don't care who you are. Like, you're not going to pull up on me like that. I just don't accept that. And so steered clear to him the rest of the way through. But and he tried, he bought me a uh, one of those... Was it like a silver, like a card holder thing, whatever the case may be. Never used it. Matter of fact, I was thinking about it the other day because I was like, I have no idea where that thing went, but I never used it. Um, hmm. Obviously, I've had the women just stay in the kitchen and cook comments made about me. Um, for my sexuality, I've been called a faggot plenty of times. Um, been called a cunt on social media as well, too, for my articles. And, of course, now I can add to the list being called the N-word. And I'd never been called that before. So, it's, hmm. I, I vacillate very much on this because it's words on the internet. And now I had friends who encouraged me to try to, like, the guy who threatened to rape me on social media, he got kicked off Twitter. Um, while I was at ESPN, like, they did a full quick sweep and they got him off of Twitter, Facebook, the whole deal. Um, the guy that made the comment about women, I was talking about the WNBA. He made a comment about women's basketball and I made a, I made a smart comment back basically like, of course, basically somebody who can never play at the level of like making commentary about women, like women would basically run him off the court. And he found me on Facebook and he called me a dyke. I was like, okay. Um, I vacillate between it's the internet and y'all would never say this to my face. I can say a hundred percent of these comments have never been said to my face. Not once. No one has ever walked up to me to say any of these things. And I take solace in that. 
But number two, there are people that feel that they're comfortable to say these things and they'll go on and it'll affect somebody who doesn't look at it the way that I look at it. I'm not going to let you get out the paint. I admitted that I cried about it. I had a lot of things going on in addition to that, in addition to the fact that it was for a couple thousand people to see, including my family and my mother and my friends, when you call me the N-word. So I was embarrassed by the fact that this had happened to me in such a public space. Um, But I don't let people get me off of my block too much, Um, especially having played sports. Like you hear a lot of things, nothing like that, but just you get used to being berated by coaches, other teammates, and you learn to tune it out. And I've learned that some of them tune it out because it's on social media. Like, again, you're not going to say it to my face. You're not going to come up and find me and say it to my face. So at this point, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of it completely throwing me off or getting me out of the industry or anything like that. I wouldn't do that. But I do worry about people who bullying affects more so than it affects me in that, in that regard. So that's a synopsis of what I have dealt with in this industry. And it's frustrating because I don't want to have to deal with it. I'm not asking to deal with it. I don't, there's nothing about my gender, my sexuality or my race that has anything to do with my level or competence to do my job whatsoever. Um, that is currently the argument that's being had probably in my mentions or my story about the fact that I don't use the team name and somehow some way that affects the information that I obtain. But clearly it does not. I'm still here writing about the team. People still tell me information about the team. The coaches and I still have good relationships on the team. The only people bothered are the fans, but it's something that I have to deal with. Unfortunately, I wish I did not have to deal with it. Um, and people could get over some of the stuff saying these things to people. But again, at the end of the day, people say small things to people. They get away with it. They go on and say larger things. And I said this very quickly after the Instagram Live, is that the person or people who called me the N-word, because they got away with it, they're going to feel empowered to do something more the next time. So maybe they go from saying it online to actually saying it to somebody in person. And for me, it's not too far of a jump for them to go from that to being the guys in Georgia who attacked Ahmaud Aubrey because he looked like somebody who had been breaking into houses and they take justice into their hands or the Dylan Roos of the world. And some people might think that is extreme, but I'm sitting here thinking like, did any of you guys like look at the snippets of the manifesto and like the things that he was saying and like the resentment he had towards black people at all? Because again, if you let those little things build up, they get to those big points. That is the whole point that I'm making when you don't check people on those things. So that has been my... I started in this career when I was 18. I'm 27, so nine-year career. That's some of the stuff that we've had to deal with. Look, I, I mean, I wish there was something <laughs> beyond me just saying, I'm sorry that you've had to deal with that. Um, it's it's gross. And someone in my position, obviously, uh, white male who's been in the business for a long time, uh, I haven't had to deal with nearly any of that kind of stuff, which obviously is its own privilege. So, um, So I obviously am. I'm mortified and sorry to hear that. And um, I know that you know this, but, you know, obviously the people at The Athletic um, think the world of you and have your support and all this stuff. There's uh, there's not a great transition, unfortunately, to go from uh, <laughs> from that subject to what you do. But I think what you do is important. You, you cover the Washington team for us. That's a you have a major NFL beat. Uh, it's a team that's of great interest in that area and obviously one of the more historical franchises in pro football. How challenging has it been to cover the NFL amid a pandemic when you cannot do what normal NFL reporters normally do? 
at first it wasn't that bad and people don't believe me, but we were in off. I mean, you know how the off season works is that we're not around the guys on a regular basis, the same way we would be during the season. I was in my off season when this whole thing started. So something weren't that different, like free agency. I wasn't going to be necessarily the team solely when they sign. Now, obviously for a big name free agent, like a Kendall Fuller, we would have had a press conference. We would have physically gone up and met him. And there's value in currency and physically meeting these people time and time again, because that's how you build those relationships. I wasn't going to go to Las Vegas for the NFL draft, even though Washington had the number two pick. For me, that just didn't seem like the right move. There were other stories for me to write that I could do from home. But we would have met the first round pick in person. We would have met the other draft picks in person by now. We would have gone to the rookie mini camps and the organized training activities and the veteran mini camp. And again, all that is all that time, all that face time, all that interaction that you have with players that have been there for a while that you already know and the ones that you're just meeting, it's all currency. It all adds up. It's just like you and I. We build relationships by people repetitively being around us, showing us consistently who they are, right? Same thing with these guys. They're no different other than the fact that they play this sport extremely well. But it's the same general principle. So that was the hard part is that I feel like there are probably some stories that I've missed out on being able to tell by being around these players, um, being around these coaches, new coaching staff. That's another thing I've lost out on. We haven't had a chance to meet the new coaching staff in person just yet. But I would have done that by now in early May, throughout May, into June everything else between I would have had about four weeks to get to know them a little bit better so it has been difficult in the sense that I as a person who likes to physically get in front of people and talk to them and get to know them have not been able to do so and I also am one of those people who you know you probably can tell I enjoy being around my colleagues I like being at the facility with them talking with them joking and everything else in between I really do enjoy that element of my job and I haven't been able to do that but I have to say the PR staff in Washington has been amazing. And I said that in multiple mailbags, I said that in stories, I said that on Twitter, they were a group of people that really formed not last year, but the year before last 2018, the same year I came in all about the same age as me as well, too. Um, Tony Wiley, who was the longtime senior vice president of communication, he left to go to special Olympics and for North America. And this group of 20 something year old, three 20 something year olds had to handle the 2019 season, wherein you saw Jay Gruden get fired, an 0-5 start, a 3-13 and season, Bruce Allen getting fired, um, multiple people that have been there for a number. Larry Hess, the former trainer, he had been there for almost 20-something years. Um, Eric Schaefer, he was – Eric, I loved Eric. He was a really, really good guy. You could talk to him about, well, you know, anything up to a point. But he was a really good guy who was very pleasant to talk to. And people like that, these longtime stalwarts were gone, and they handled – everything and the Trent Williams situation they had that in the midst of everything else going on as well too and they handled it again this group of middle 20 something year olds was able to manage all the stuff that I just named and now you have a new coach that's in new coaching staff um, additional new players you have the number two pick get Chase Young all the different stuff that comes with that I think that this PR staff has done an exemplary job in terms of making players available to us, we've talked to Chase now three times at this point in time. Kyle Smith and Ron Rivera, we talked to them after every day of draft picks. We never talked to Bruce Allen after draft picks. We had Bruce Allen at the Senior Bowl last year under the bleachers, and then we had him. Did we even talk to him at the Combine? I don't remember if we talked to him at the Combine or not. I don't think we did, actually. We talked to Doug Williams. Excuse me. So 
we finally have leadership talking to us on a consistent basis about what is going on with this team and for the most part getting really direct answers when we ask them. So I have to say that in terms of what we could have had with this pandemic and not having access and the fact that the team did not have to make players available, I've had a pretty good offseason in that regard. I mean, we've gotten all the big-name players. We've gotten ample time. Jack Del Rio actually made an additional amount of time for us to speak to him when we had our conversation with him recently. Just, it has, I don't have any complaints outside of the fact that I really would like to, you know, see people in person and interact with them. And that's saying something because that drive to Ashburn is tough. It's about 45, 50 minutes both ways with no traffic. So that tells you how much I miss being around people that I would take that drive on. Right. <laughs> um, you, you know, one of the things, I mean, you know, we're entering an unknown world here uh, for the media when it comes to all these sports. The NFL is still on track to start um, to start on time, or at least to start within the framework that it believes it can start. But we're not going to know, obviously, for another couple of weeks, months. There is the possibility, uh, the NFL hasn't been clear on this yet, that you could be covering games or you could have the opportunity to cover games on site this fall. I want to ask you how you would feel about heading into that environment. This is not going to be the bubble like the NBA and presumably be able to go to the stadium and go home. But still, you know, you're there's significant risk for anybody at this point going to any kind of gathering. How would you feel about that? Um, how would you feel about that prospect? Where, where do you stand on that? On the one hand, I want to do my job. We, I mean, again, we just had layoffs. And to sit there and say that I'm okay with what, where we currently stand would not be true. I want to get back to sports happening because the sports were happening. I don't think the 46 people that we lost at our company would have lost their jobs, frankly. And I don't want to lose my job. I want to continue to cover the team and to try to do so to the best of my ability. So... In order to do that, that would require me to be around them. And hmm. if I mean, if we took all the precautions and everything else like that, I, I have to say, like, I might not be too terrified. I mean, I've been out with my mask and everything else like that. So, I mean, I've been around people, but you're in, you're being around people. I don't know how we would like what would we do for the locker room. Like, I'm curious about like what would the logistics for that look like and things of that nature. That would probably give me the greatest level of concern, I suppose, being around all those people in like that tight confined space. And you know, a team is about 53 people, um, suit, uh, 47 suited up and the six that are not. I want. It's tough. I want to go back to doing my job. I want to not worry about being laid off because if the games come back, I don't necessarily have that fear. Um, I think that that would obviously help like in terms of my writing, like having more stuff to write about by physically being there on the flip side. It's not that only that I don't want to get sick. It's that even if let's say I catch the virus and it doesn't adversely affect me, if I don't know and I give it to somebody else and they get sick, like my parents or anybody else that I'm close to, I'd be devastated and it would have been avoidable. And that's what I think about often. And it's not, and frankly, it's not just me. I don't want the players to get sick either. I don't want the coaching staff to get sick or anybody else that has to be there for that game day um, or that experience. And that's what I think about regularly is that who we, do we care about football so much that we would even, if there was a small possibility that somebody is going to get sick, maybe really, really sick, possibly die. We have coworkers to Sean Reed. He has two uncles that died from COVID in his family, like his brothers, his brothers, um, excuse me, his father's brothers. Those aren't like distant cousins, those people that he's grown up with his whole life. I feel horrible if the games went on and 
somebody I was close to or somebody the players were close to contracted the virus from being around them and they didn't know or um, something along those lines, that would be very tough for me to swallow because we don't have to have the games. And I'm saying this after I just said that I want to not worry about my job, but my job to me is not more important than the peace of mind of people not being sick, possibly losing their lives over this virus that we're still learning new things about every single day. It's just not worth it to me. And that's, that's very tough, Richard. I never thought at 27 I'd be in a position where I would sit there telling you that there's something that comes before my job. Anybody you know in my – if you were to ask anybody in my life that knows me, they would tell you that I value my work tremendously, like I am a workaholic and everything else in between. And we have finally found the one thing where I hesitate to say, yeah, let, like let's go all in on bringing sports back so I can do my job. I just don't want people to get sick from this virus. I don't want to get sick from this virus, and I don't want to you know, adversely affect anybody if I don't know that I have the virus as well and I'm okay. So I feel conflicted. That's how, that's, that's how I'd honestly feel conflicted. I think that's beyond normal. I mean, I think actually that would be, that's to me the most human reaction. You should feel conflicted. It's a, it's a conflicting, you're sort of a walking confliction every day. Uh, one more about that. One more about your job. Do, do you, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're in ridiculously uncharted waters within that do you expect the team name to become a significant story in, in for the rest of 2020? Or I should sort of maybe sort of be specific. Will the team name become a story if the NFL ends up playing this year? It's, a, it's going to be a story. It's a story right now without the team playing. The Washington, obviously, I know you know this. The Washington Post editorial board just called for them to change the team name. And I, the one thing I forgot to add to my mailbag was that little point because I point out the fact that, yes, they ran the poll in 2016, about 90% of Native Americans polled did not care about the term. But now that same organization is calling for Team Motor Dance Matter to change the name. Again, there's no games going on. Um, AOC, they tried to participate in the social media awareness online by doing the blackout. And Representative AOC, I am just Alexandra, um, I can't pronounce her last name, and I hate butchering people's names. I do. Ocasio-Cortez. I know that is in New York. She dunked on them on Twitter. And, I mean, they want to participate, but obviously they know they're an open target every time they do because the team name. And it it will continue to be a point of top. I mean, shoot, they're having a conversation about whether they should use the Blackhawks logo in Chicago. And they're just using the, the Native American tribe name. But that's a conversation topic right now. One of our colleagues just wrote an article about whether it's time to change it. So... Um, yes, it is going to continue to be a point of conversation, especially right now, as we are looking at Confederate monuments coming down, the buildings named after Confederate soldiers being changed, bases being changed after Confederate. If the team does not believe, and I know there are people in that organization who know that there is a much larger storm coming, but if there are people within that organization who do not feel like this is going to continue to be a big deal in the midst of everything else happening, they are in for such a rude awakening such a rude way because especially it's like people if fans can't attend you see all the protesters going out for these rallies where they take down these statues and they take down all these uh racist symbols and things of that nature what do you think they're going to do if they're not attending the games on sunday you think there won't be people protesting i think that's short-sighted if they believe that i agree with you uh, i mean I, I think it's absolutely going to be a story some of that will sort of revolve around whatever the nfl is uh but um i i that the, I think we're in a major inflection point in United States history. I think you, you think you'd be very naive uh, if you are ownership of that team 
uh, to think otherwise. Here's where I want to um, conclude with or finish with. You um, You mentioned that you're 27 years old. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's young in the business. You're not, you're not, uh, um, you know, you're, 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 that's young in the business. I, I would say you're, you are a young person, even though you particular, you have significant experience already, um, as a sports journalist. So I ask you like, as someone who's 27, um, who's obviously, um, had success already in the business, but you sort of see the landscape in front of you. Um, what, what's your optimism just about staying in sports media, staying in sports journalism? What do you hope to be doing five or 10 years from now? Are you, are you optimistic even amid layoffs, including it at our place? Uh, are you optimistic that there's still a place for the kind of, uh, kind of stories that you want to, want to tell what, what is, what is somebody in your position at 27 years old who in once upon a time, you know, should have sort of had an easy you know, another 30, 40 years left in the business. Now everything sort of is, is unknown. How do you feel about that? It's a long ass question by me, but I think you know what I'm getting at. And do you mind if I give a long answer and return to your long question? Is that fair? Yeah, please do. Because then it'll get away from how I, how shittily I asked that question. So yes, I don't think please you go did. Feel free. It, it has a lot of caveats. I, I appreciate that. Um, so how do I feel about the industry itself? obviously nervous. I mean, it's not, again, like just looking at different friends and maybe this is part of my angst is that I feel for people that I maybe I shouldn't feel for, but that's what makes me me. So I see a lot of people getting laid off people before the athletic made their layoffs. So, I mean, companies were downsizing because of the fact that they were losing money from the, the effects of coronavirus. So it is very, it is very easy to look at that and say, I need to find a new career where this is less of a threat. I, however, tend to life challenges and I love the job that I do even with all of the terrible and shitty things that happen I would not let someone or something deter me from doing this job I have committed nine years almost 10 years to this um hours and hours and hours because I love what I do I love the people that I work with I've enjoyed the bosses that I've had I've enjoyed the people that I've met along the way the places I've lived um, even places like people know, like I lived in Oklahoma city for a time when I worked at the Oklahoma, I loved my time out there and people didn't expect me to love being in Oklahoma. I did love being in Oklahoma. I thought it was great. Um, and I value that experience and I wouldn't replace it with anything else under the sun. I enjoy writing features about people. I love when people trust me to do stories that other people could have done, but they came to me or I was able to talk them into working with me on the story and coming up with something that they're proud of that we put together. I enjoy that experience tremendously and I would not, again, I wouldn't give any of that up for the world. I love the red eye flights that I take when I am dead tired from coming a game. I love running through the airport when I'm leaving the stadium to get to the airport to make my flight. Um, I enjoy the times I've had to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning to catch a flight or whatever or drive to wherever I need to go. I love seeing the different places that I've traveled to, the different foods I've experienced because I've traveled to these different places. I don't have too many complaints about what I do for a job. I, I really don't. There are many things that we could do better. The same way I feel about the United States. I love the United States of America. I love the fact that I'm an American. I love the fact that I was born here. I love many different elements about being from this country. There are things that could be better. So many things that could be better. And the only reason I say that is because I care about the well-being of the industry. I care about the well-being of our country and the fact that you're supposed to challenge things that you love and make them want to be better 
for everyone else that comes that's in your time and after your time. That is what I genuinely believe at my core. And maybe it's a bit idealistic, but I think that me being here has an impact. I think that players seeing me in the locker room, see somebody that looks just like them in terms of age, their race. We have so many in-depth conversations that they don't necessarily have with other people. And I want them to have that avenue. Richard, I think, I don't remember if you wrote about it, but I'm sure you remember the NFL drafting this year. And I think you know where I'm going to go when I say this. But they would announce a player, and it was trauma porn. Every second they mentioned a player, like this player is being drafted in the second round with the 42nd pick, and they lost their best friend in a shooting when they were 11 years old. And it's just, holy cow. Yes, they, they still need people like me clearly here because that's not the story I would have written. Why am I, why on someone's best day of their life to this point, why am I talking about the fact that they saw their best friend get gunned down at 11 years old? There was not another story that I could have told in that segment, really. I have to believe that. And part of that is the fact that, yeah, as a black person, I am particularly sensitive to seeing those stories about, oh, like they came up in like a crack addicted household. Oh, they came up in a one parent household. Oh, they were through the foster care system. Those stories are valid and important, but those stories don't necessarily always define people. Some of them do. A lot of them don't necessarily. They have other interests outside of that. And that's one thing I love about what I do is that I talk to these guys. And I have at least I found some of the commonalities. I mean, I had somebody who was interested in um, Big Mouth, a TV show on Netflix that's about sex education. We talked about that. I had somebody else who loved the movie, who loved the movie Moonlight in the locker room. And we had a great conversation about the lighting, the way that it was shot, and something that they're really, really interested in. And that is a neither negative nor positive thing. It's just something that they're interested in that maybe somebody else is interested in. And maybe somebody else would never have assumed that there are NFL players who like the movie Moonlight that is a, a coming-of-age story about two um, gay black men. But people are multidimensional, and they have different interests. And I found that out by just talking about something that I was regularly interested in, um, discussing shoes, discussing other sports, all kinds of different things. But people are multidimensional, and I feel like I still need to be here because – if in 20 at the NFL draft, there's still such an emphasis on telling the worst parts of people's lives, the struggles and all the heartache that people have gone through to get to a point, then yes, I still feel there's a need because again, I promise you like that would not have been the way I would have gone about it. And I promise you I could have found some other story that could have been used for that segment outside of something where you're talking about probably one of the worst days that this person has gone through. I just genuinely believe that. What I want to do in five to ten years, I look at Mina Kimes. I love the way that she writes. I love her personality. I've heard a lot of great things about her. When I was at ESPN, when I left, it's just the people that I know that have worked with her, they have nothing but wonderful things to say about her, her diligence, her attention to detail. I look at her DeAndre Hopkins story. That's a prime example of attention to detail, and I'm sure you know the story, is that she saw him wearing the cleats, and she walked up and asked him about why is he wearing the cleats for my cleats, my cause which is crazy to me that nobody else would have asked him that question because they literally put the shoes out there. Um, If you've ever been at the facility, they'll put the shoes out there and they give an explanation of why players are wearing it. So I just find it very difficult to believe that the star wide receiver on the team, nobody else thought to go a little deeper onto that, but she did. And I think that's cool. And I learned a lot about his mother, what she had been through, what he had been through growing up. I learned a lot about his personality as a child, even though it was one of those tough stories. Um, but I learned something very interesting about that. I love the way Sarah Spain writes. I remember the story she did about the Kansas City Chiefs. I think it's the running back coach, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. But I look, I look at that story and I think to myself, wow, 
I love to write like that, or the old Sports Illustrated, like Thomas Lake. I'm trying to remember the exact story that he wrote. It, it wasn't the Ray Cruz story. That wasn't his story. Um, but I love Thomas Lake's writing. I love this story from Sports Illustrated about the coach in Ohio who there was a school shooting, and he was the one who used himself as a shield. Yeah. yeah. So you, you know exactly what I'm talking That's about. That's right. Cover, sport, co- cover Sports Illustrated. Yeah. And Thomas Lake, by the way, wrote... Uh, one of the most amazing pieces I've read in the last three years on James on the sort of mystery around James Brown's death. You ever read that? I did not read it's that. An incredible piece on CNN. Now I have to read that though. Check that out. It's amazing, amazing, amazing work. Yeah, Thomas Thomas Lake's a pretty brilliant writer for sure. But that's what I want to ascend to at some point. I, I like doing the day to day stuff. It has challenged me in ways that I never would have anticipated, and that's, and that's something about me. I want to be challenged. I love feature writing because it is a challenge to put a story together in the best way possible with all the information that you have that one extra interview that you get, that one extra nugget that you somehow some way acquire, it, it just all adds up to this beautiful piece that you put together. And hopefully people, when they read what I write, they feel like that they're there or they feel the emotions that I'm trying to get them to feel or some other emotion that I did maybe I didn't intend to make them feel. But I want to write like that. And those are people that I look at and say, I'd love to write like them. I, one of the things I love about Mina, um, the same way I love Bomani, is how critically they think about stuff. Um, it doesn't always have to be popular, but they're so well-read and so well-versed on the things that they talk about that they can go on and on for hours and dissect it from multiple angles. And I so appreciate that. Um, and I'd love to, in five to ten years, that's along the lines of what I would like to be doing is writing either pieces that make you critically think about stuff or features that really make you feel they're a combination of the two. I don't see why I can't do both if I really want to. Um, but I'm not a pessimistic person. I tend to be on the more optimistic side of things. I hope things work out. I hope I get to continue to tell stories about this new group of players that is here in Washington and the things that they've done. I hope I can continue to make new relationships with players. I enjoy that thoroughly and new relationships with my colleagues. I enjoy that aspect of what I do as well, too. And I hope that sports fans enjoy the things that I put out there, the information that I'm able to gather so that they are better informed about the topics at hand related to their favorite team. That's my favorite part of the job is I like writing about things people don't know about. And I like adding new dimensions to the stories that maybe they have read about. That's my favorite part of my job. If I can do that successfully, even if it's not to the scale of Mina Khans or Thomas Lake or Bomani Jones or Sarah Spain, I just like to continue to grow and get better at the things that I'm doing. And that really is more in line with feature writing. I, I mean, I like reporting. I like breaking news. I do enjoy doing it. I just, I love going all in. I love when someone trusts me to go all in with them on a story. That, to me, is more gold than any breaking news story that I've ever done, really. Mm. Yeah, I love that answer. That's great. Um, and you're clearly on your way, in my opinion, by the way. Rhiannon Walker covers the Washington football team for The Athletic. Prior to The Athletic, she worked at ESPN's The Undefeated. Um, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, uh, um, you can find her work pretty easily on there. Um, she's also on, um, uh, Twitter as well. If you are on that, uh, service, you, she'll be able to check out her work, uh, via that. Uh, Rhianna, listen, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, and thanks for your honesty and, uh, and transparency on this stuff. I wish you nothing but, uh, the best heading forward. And hopefully one day we'll, we'll, we'll meet in person when, uh, when we are, when we are past this, uh, this pandemic, but I'll, I'll be reading your work for sure from Toronto. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today. Of course, no problem, Richard. Hopefully the next time in Toronto, hopefully during the summer, I will reach out to you and we can get together. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. As I said at the top, Mike Reese um, covers the Patriots for ESPN. If, if you are an NFL fan, you've certainly read his work and seen his face on ESPN for many years. Uh, he makes regular television appearances on SportsCenter. NFL Live. He has been part of ESPN since 2009. Prior to that, he did great work for the Boston Globe. And he joins me today because I wanted to talk about the Cam Newton signing, which is just major, major news and presents, I think, just a once again, a fascinating media situation in New England. And Mike Reese joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Mike, how are you? Richard, doing great. Thanks for having me. Hope you're healthy and well and same to all the listeners. Thank you, and stay safe to you and your family. All right, Mike, you're, you've already been on one of the more interesting beats in professional sports. How much more interesting did this beat get with the acquisition of Cam Newton? Oh, I, I think the way I worded it was it was an already compelling situation, and now this sort of throws a firecracker, you know, right into that already compelling situation. Because the way I looked at it was this was going to be one of the more watched stories in sports regardless like how do you replace tom brady like huge question and all eyes were going to be on jared stidham and what's this kid all about and so i had just been sort of wrapping my arms around that aspect of it and now all of a sudden cam comes in and the storyline shifts so uh, to me it just makes it uh, all the more interesting what um I know you've obviously sort of primarily been based around the Patriots, but what have you had any interactions with Cam Newton? What have you, and if you have, what have your interactions been like with him? Or perhaps maybe your observations of Cam Newton, and then fast forward that to Cam Newton being a Patriot. So I have, and, and one of the reasons why is so, you know, the Patriots and Panthers are usually um, play in the preseason. So, you know, I'd say every other year or so, you know, you're covering a game and he's involved in it. And actually, example from a couple years ago, we were down in Carolina and it's a preseason game and he takes off running. And if you recall, he like flips in the air, spins around, lands on his head and like everyone's thinking, oh, Cam, what are you doing? This is a preseason game. And so my assignment that night was actually to go away from the Patriots and you know, follow Cam and, and find out what happened with, you know, was he injured? What happened? He had a big black eye, and I remember being in the press conference, you know, talking to him about the black eye. And so, you know, there there have been some back and forth in terms of, of media stuff with him, but nothing on the, the personal side where I've had a chance to really get to know him other than, Richard, I would say the flashy outfits and the fashion and, and that type of stuff, which seems like it could be a, a lot of fun. So, yeah, listen, you would know this better than me. It's, I'm sure there will be a training camp competition, but, like, I live in the real world. You, If Cam Newton is healthy and anything close to, you know, what he's been at his best, 
he he's the starting quarterback in the New England Patriots, right? I mean, I mean, how can that how could that not be? Well, that that's the way I look at it, and I would say I, if two ifs, you know, are answered decisively, I, I'm with you. And the the first if is, okay, does he come in and acclimate? to a different culture. Like, this is all business. It's hard driving. And sometimes, for those who haven't been around it, you know, the adjustment can be challenging. And, you know, like, I'll just use an example. Like, Chad Ochocinco, to me, was a, a, a player that when he came here, you know, everyone said, oh, you know, get him for, uh, you know, low-risk, high-reward situation, been very productive over his career, and it didn't work out here. You know, so it doesn't always work out. So I have to put that first if with Cam, just in terms of how he comes in with the culture and, and is it a fit for that. And then the second part is the health, you know, if he's healthy. And like you said, I mean, so I think if those two ifs are answered and he performs at the level he's capable of, based on his resume, his big game experience, it's, I, I put him as the, you know, the favorite, the likely starter for the Patriots. Mike, Tom Brady was such a mega figure in that organization. It's essentially, if you didn't live in New England, like, and you sort of the, you were asked the first thing that comes to mind with the with the Patriots. I mean, outside of Patriot haters, which, who would probably you know offer some very creative answers to that, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick is is obviously sort of the answer that you'd give. Um, he was you know far and away. I, the most famous Boston sports person over the last couple of years. You know this better than me. Every time he talked to the press, this would be major news. And he, he seemed to be like in terms of sort of a, uh, a leadership position or sort of the ethos or DNA of the Patriots, he sort of represented them uh, among the players. So he's now gone in Tampa. What, what will that locker room be like without Tom Brady? Like, are there people who fill the leadership void? Can 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 that void even be filled given just how monumental a figure Tom Brady was? I thought Jason McCourty made a great point on this, and he said Tom Brady is one of the unique people in the sense of he just leads by his presence. Like, you just watch him, and you can't help but follow along. And he rubs off on everyone just simply by being there. Like, there aren't many players that you can sort of categorize that way in the NFL. So I would say there isn't one player that can replace that. But they do, Richard, have a lot of good leadership in that room. It's just that more people are going to have to sort of pull that rope, from my view. Um, this is not a locker room void of quality, you know, character. Like Matthew Slater, the son of Pro Football Hall of Famer Jackie Slater, is you know, one of the finest you know, special teams players ever in the league, but also one of its true ambassadors you know, in terms of the way he carries himself. Devin McCourty, James White, um, Dante Hightower, uh, Julian Edelman, you know, this 11th year now. So they have plenty of leadership, but what's going to be different is that Tom's presence isn't there. And, and to me, not seeing him there, like how does that not have a factor on the guys and how they sort of pull through that and overcome that to me is going to be a compelling storyline. You know, I mean, we, we don't really know yet what the uh, sort of media guidelines will be covering uh, teams this year once camp starts and obviously once the games happen. I mean, the reality is the virus makes the schedule on all this. We don't. All that said, Mike, in terms of sort of a, a macro question, um, how challenging has it been 
to cover the NFL right now. And what are some of the things you are thinking about if indeed the NFL makes this grand experiment and, and goes through with this season? Well, you know, the challenging part of it is just not being there. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm sort of believer in that old school approach of like, the best way to cover something is to, to be there, be in that environment, to smell the grass, to be in the locker room and to, to see the emotion on the players' faces, whether they're coming back from a practice. And you can really get a feel for, wow, you know, the, the, what type of practice that is. And you can paint a picture of what it's really like there. We sort of have this wall that's been put up, this virtual wall, for good reason, of course. I mean, you don't want to put... The, the, are anyone's health at risk in this situation. So to me, that's the most challenging part of covering anything right now. We're just sort of one step removed from where you want to be. And, and as we go forward, you know, I think this year to me is just sort of all bets are off and you just have to make the best of the situation, prioritizing, you know, safety first and foremost. And then I look at it more from the bigger picture approach. I, I hope we can get to a point, Richard, where we can get back to what it was, um, because I think just the quality of everyone's reporting will, and, and the, in turn, the people sort of consuming that reporting and content is going to be that much greater. Mike, what is your individual com- where does your individual comfort level lie in terms of going to a stadium or going to a facility and covering a team? I, I feel comfortable, um, you know, based on, you know, I'll, I'll be very careful and I'll follow all the guidelines because to me that's the first priority. It's not, I'm not going to put anything at risk um, that, that trumps the safety and health of you know, myself, my family. But if they tell me, like, hey, you can come watch a practice, you got to be six feet away and, and you got to wear a mask, like, sign me up. I am there, and I'll be so happy to be there and really appreciative of it, Richard. I've always loved it and appreciated what we do. I think going through this experience, though, it makes me appreciate it that much more just because you realize that there's a possibility it it might not be there for you or it's fleeting and it can change fast. I think that perspective has really been driven home to me this year. Here's the last one I want to ask you, Mike. Um, I think it's very clear that there's going to be significant player activism this year in the NFL. We we've already seen um, we've already seen players say that they'll take a knee. Um, and the interesting thing I think about that league is that while we have seen many times players of color speak out, it's the first time I've seen, um, quite frankly, white quarterbacks in the NFL, uh, Baker Mayfield, et cetera, just be very very vocal here in terms of of their support in terms of uh, fighting and pledging to fight systemic racism and police brutality. And just the fact is that they they have said that they are going to be, um, in some sense, activists this year. Uh, You have a very, very interesting team that you cover in terms of, um, you know, it's it's very much under Belichick and Kraft, sort of by the book and and professionalized and don't make waves. So uh, a little bit of a thought bubble question here, Mike. How... How will this be received by Belichick and Kraft in, if indeed there are any players on the Patriots who sort of show some outward activism? So when the players here kneeled, um, that so they did. So like the Patriots weren't one of those teams that didn't have players that kneeled um, back when that happened in 2017, if I have the year right. And then that was for one game. And what they did was 
they came together and they had open discussions, you know, and they talked about it. And ultimately, they came to sort of a, a resolution among themselves to, hey, let's, we're going to all stand the next week, but we're going to lock arms together and show unity. And so I think this year, um, James White, the running back, uh, one of their captains, has already said he's sure that there's going to be some player protests. I, just, I think the key part to me from Bill Belichick's view is it's going to be a, a conversation that they have and that everyone might see it differently. Like that's, and that's okay. Like They're not going to try to make players do something against their will, but they'll have a conversation about it and they'll, they'll air their... I don't want to use the word grievances, but air their thoughts. And I will say, like, actually, that's part of what I've always sort of respected covering not just this team, but football. It seems like when you're part of a team, like, you, you come in that door and you're all there for a common goal. And you might come from different backgrounds or be at different stages in your life. And people, the person right next to you, that's, you're teaming up with them for the same goal, might have a different view than you. And you know what? That's okay. You talk about it, you listen, and you might agree to disagree, but there's mutual respect there. And I, I don't think that, I think that's what I experienced covering the Patriots on this topic and, and other conversations like it. And it seems to me, just looking around the league, I, I, I see that similarly for other teams as well. Mike Reese reports on the Patriots for all ESPN platforms. You can find them on television, audio, radio, uh, online. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's been a, basically an essential media voice, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to the New England Patriots and, and how that dynastic team has sort of uh, played itself out, both in the NFL as well as all of sports. Mike, it's always good to catch up with you. Um, I appreciate all the times I've uh, sort of asked for your insight um, for media stuff that, uh, that you've always been available. Wish you nothing but continued success and Stay safe, and thanks so much today for uh, joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, I I feel the same way about you. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy the rest of the summer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, as I said at the top, Josh Tolentino works with me at The Athletic, and he covers the Tampa Bay Rays. Prior to covering the Rays, he covered the Packers for The Athletic, And he also has previous stops at the Kansas City Star and the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Josh Tolentino on the Sports Media Podcast. Josh, I hope all is well and that uh, that you and your family are uh, safe and healthy. Richard, it's a pleasure, man. And and same to you. Obviously, we've got baseball ramping up here this week. So, you know, a little bit more busy. So... Uh, looking forward to to that as we all are, I think. I'm going to get to the Rays in a second, but first off, I've been asking a lot of my guests this question, so I, I want to ask you as well. Um, it's a macro question. Feel free to go wherever you want. How have you processed the last month in America? Man, how have I processed it? it it's been a it's been a lot. I mean, we've we've seen so much. I think even before this past month, with 
the pandemic and just kind of like the mad scramble that I think we've all gone into. And then um, with everything following that, with just the social injustice and just so many of the social issues going on. um, Personally, I mean, I, I, I can say it's, it's, it's been a lot, man. It's, uh, you know, you, you see these things on, uh, I think you just scroll through, through Twitter or Instagram or whatever social feed you see every day. And you see a lot of the, the videos going on, whether it be protests or people acting out in public. And it's like, man, I can't believe this is what's happening. And, you know, to some point it happens to you on a personal level. And, uh, I think it just hits that much more. You, um, you cover the race for us. And baseball is obviously, um, you know, significantly in the news as we tape this at the end of June. Um, the return to play plan is in place, and their hope, obviously, is that we're going to see games in July. Uh, how challenging, Josh, has it been to cover uh, the Rays amid a pandemic? You know, it's it's been pretty tough. You know, obviously, since there's no access to uh, the players and the coaches and um, the Rays themselves. You know, I've talked to a couple of our coworkers who cover some other teams and, and just other people around the league, um, you know, those big market teams. And it sounds like, you know, access has been pretty tough for them uh, in terms of setting up Zooms and such. But, you know, the Rays are, are pretty accommodable in, in terms of, of getting – players or, or whoever you need but i mean still you're not in you're not in the, the stadium with you're not at the ballpark with them every day uh you know you're not interacting with them every day on a, on a daily basis and, and not even just being at the ballpark i mean seeing them out and about you know there's, there's been very uh few occurrences of actually seeing them face to face over the past few months so uh from that standpoint it, it has been pretty tough and, and how many times richard can you write Oh, how much? How many times has this play or affected, or, or this moment in history? And, and looking back, so uh, you know you can only revisit history so many times, and especially with a team that doesn't have that much history, uh, such as the Rays. So, um, you know, we we try to keep the ideas churning, and it's good to ha- it's definitely good to have players' uh, phone numbers and such. But um, once these games and really spring training 2.0, summer camp, whatever you want to call it, gets ramped back up. Um, hopefully there will be a lot more to write and talk about. Josh, um, you know I don't have to tell you because you live down there. Uh, the cases in Florida uh, continue to rise. It's uh, it has to be a massive concern for certainly for the NBA who will be uh, bubbled in quarantine in Orlando, and then obviously any um, any Major League Baseball team or any pro franchise that's sort of based in Florida. When it comes to your own personal health and the prospect of covering games in Florida or just sort of being in that state covering sports. Um, and I say this as someone who's in Toronto, so you're on the ground. I, I sort of can only make judgments based on I what I read. But uh, like, are you, does it present worry for you? Are, are you worried at all about your personal health potentially covering this stuff uh, in a state that at least at the moment seems to be heading in the, in the direction we don't want it to go? Yeah, it seemingly it seems like almost every day that Florida is setting a new record of, of positive cases for COVID nineteen. And, and to be honest, Richard, you think back, you asked, you know, how the past month has been. Um, I think really since kind of the whole quarantine period began, or when sports shut down in March, 
and you know all these different local governments were putting uh, you know restrictions on uh, you know whether it be stores closing restaurants whatever uh you know you drive around in Florida or at least where down here in St. Petersburg it really didn't feel like anyone was in quarantine it, it was really kind of a regular you know i mean there was no ghost town feel people were still out and about every single day um obviously you know if it, it, places are closed they can't get in there but people are still out i mean the weather's obviously very uh pleasant throughout the year here and i just feel like a lot of people down here didn't take it seriously which which is why you're seeing um you know the spike in cases it just, it just seems almost every day it's, it's funny the you know just reading around experts said last week uh you know cases were supposed to to peak around 6k and I think Florida went from 5K positive cases to 9K. So it's like they totally skipped the the whole 6K prediction. So uh, as far as myself, obviously definitely concerned. And, you know, even editors stress, you know, don't feel the pressure of going to the ballpark. But um, to some point, I mean, you're going to have to get to the stadium and obviously practice proper protocols, wear a mask at all times. Um, the Rays specifically sent out their, their guidelines of, you know, what they require from the media attending practice or um, whatever you want to call this uh, summer camp starts here on Friday. So um, I don't know if it's the convenience of living literally across the street from the ballpark. So it's like, man, I, I, I should probably go just for work purposes, but um, definitely concerned and going to be aware of, you know, my, my surroundings, but hopefully, um, you know, I mean, so far the the Rays don't have any cases. I know it's inevitable at this point with with the how everything's picking up, but um, I guess we'll see how it handles within the media uh, itself once we enter the building. Yeah, still, I'm certainly wishing you stay stay safe and healthy. I do think uh, all these sports organizations um, will do their due diligence as best as possible. The, you know, the thing is, you can't control every variable. That's just no one can. So. We knock on wood for that. Um, I want to ask you something that's uh, obviously a very sort of serious um, and topic and something that you put online um, that clearly, uh, I think, touched a lot of people um, and, and maybe even brought some awareness to people, hopefully. Uh, on June 25th, you tweeted out that I am not the Chinese virus. I am not the Kung flu. I'm a proud, I'm a proud second-generation Filipino-American. Um and you wanted people, you then sort of, you let people know you wanted them to read uh, a post that you had. And you talked about being in downtown St. Petersburg at a local grocery store. And there was a racist white couple who yelled out Kung Flu to you, go back to China. They mocked you for wearing a mask. Uh, total everyday racism right there. Obviously, you know, I'm sorry that happened to you. It totally is, is, a, is, is a fucking disgrace. Um, I, I want... Um, I want to just get you, if you could, just to sort of reflect on that uh, today and whether you, whether in the course of being a professional or outside of obviously working, if you have faced a lot of anti-Asian xenophobia. No, first, Richard, I, I, you know, thank you for, for you reaching out. And then I think that extends to many, many of our coworkers, um, you know, even to the uh people high execs uh within our company i mean the outpouring of love and support uh since i put that out it's just been 
you know, it's outweighed any backlash and hate because obviously when you put that out there, uh, you're, you're going to get some type of um, reaction from, you know, people who, <laughs> it's crazy, you know, as a reporter, people are questioning your integrity and, you know, it's like this didn't happen, you know, so many jokes out there that um, questioning if it happened or not, but I mean, it definitely happened and you Think about the situation, Richard. I mean, it was pretty ugly. The, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty frequent around downtown St. Petersburg, and it's considered a dirt, uh, pretty diverse city and had, had never really run into this type of experience or racism in my two-plus years of, of living down here. But uh, like what you said, I mean, just rewinding a little bit, I was leaving the grocery store, and this is probably a day after they implemented the um, mask requirement or face coverings across the, the city and county about time. The And, you know, it looked like they weren't being allowed in from what I was observing. And, you know, just coincidentally, here I am walking out at the same time. They're, they're not being allowed in. And they just take their anger out on me. And, and like what you said, they, they called me the Kung Flu and they told me to go back to China uh, with the virus. Um and from there, it just kind of got an escalated situation. Other people got involved, and there was a lot of uh, shouting between the people who came and decided with me. And then, you know, there was actually a police officer, the police officer there who de-escalated the situation. But uh, like what you said, I think that was the biggest takeaway, Richard, is spreading awareness. And, and right before we, we got on, I looked at the tweet, actually. 1.5 million views, to, and just to know that, that many people were able to kind of just see the story and, and and you know i'll mention one more thing here um oppression towards asians exists i mean and it's to the point where it's normalized and uh where incidents like this one happened you know it actually occurs more frequently than you think and i've had so many dms from complete strangers who've said they've gone through a similar experience recently and many of them have told me how their voices have gone unheard after enduring the same pain and that by me sharing like my own encounter, I was able to at least in a small way, provide them an outlet to relate. And also like what we said, spread awareness. And I mean, it, it was just a, a moment that kind of shook me uh, for, you know, the, the following hours, maybe day until I decided to put it out there. But um, just hearing from those people and just so many people who have supported, I think the, the biggest takeaway was, you know, being able to spread awareness. Josh, c- can you educate me on whether you have uh, experienced this um, professionally? Have you um, have you run into anti-Asian xenophobia when it comes to um, either hiring, when it comes to just sort of everyday things that, that occur in sports journalism? Of course. I, I think it comes even before that, Richard. And, you know, even, even just to bring it back a little more, um, I think when, you know, people like myself and, and other Asians and the people, fr- quite frankly, that have just messaged me that they've gone through the same thing, it's a it's a lazy word association game in today's society. It's like you see someone Asian, you say something Asian. And uh, growing up, I mean, in elementary school, that was like being called Jackie Chan or, or Bruce Lee and, um, you know, fast forwarding a little bit to, you know, high school, college days and you know, I played a little low-level college basketball growing up, and, you know, obviously would always play pickup basketball at the gym. And it's like when you show up, you're you're called Jeremy Lin, or it's like, you know, you're picking fives, and it's like, oh, I got Jeremy Lin, or it's like the guy who's guarding you, he's like, hey, I got Jay Lin. 
Um, and it's like, okay, you think about it from that perspective, Richard, the, you know, Jeremy Lin's this, you know, Lin's sanity. I mean, he, he is like a, an idol to, um, many Asian Americans. I mean, who, who love the sport of basketball. I mean, basketball is the biggest sport, uh, out there in that continent. I mean, across so many countries in Asia and, you know, when you, when you think about it, it's like, we don't like being called Jeremy Lin and here, this is Jeremy Lin, the superstar. What more do you think if we're going to be called Kung Flu, you know, this, this virus that's, I mean, this pandemic. Um, so when you think about it from that perspective and it's like, you know, you already don't like being called or, or associated to, you know, these reference points, um, with pop culture and sports and, you know, especially those names are pretty limited. Um, I mean, what more with this pandemic that's taken the lives of so many people? So, um, I mean, oppression towards Asians exists, and, and I think I've just seen it at uh, so many levels. And um, But I think that one more thing I'd also probably mention is that, you know, without taking any way any importance from, from Black Lives Matter protests and, and such, there I mean, there were protests last week in New York held by different Asian-American grassroots organizations and, I mean, their campaign was titled, I mean, Asians are not a virus, and they're stressing that Kung Flu and other names are racist. So um, I think from that standpoint, it's just been an ongoing issue. And like what I said in my tweet, it's just going to be a continued battle for Asians and I think all people of color for for many more years. Uh, I'm I'm sorry that you've had to go through that. I I do appreciate um, you sharing some of those experiences, hopefully. Um, they will have an impact, at least people sort of listening who might be unaware to that kind of stuff. Um, I, um, Rhiannon Walker, our colleague, is on this podcast as well, and I, I asked her a question about sort of how she feels about the future of the business. I, you, my sense is that you guys are around the same age. Are you, are you around thirty, Josh, or am I, do I have my age right there? Maybe a little younger. Uh, a few, a few, a few years under thirty, but but me and Rhi are actually pretty good friends. We're both part of a, uh, you know the sports journalism Institute and uh, she's, a, she's from the DMV and I've got a lot of family out there. So we keep, we keep in touch quite frequently. <laughs> My apologies. I don't want to, I don't want to age you. And by the way, I'm jealous as hell as to the fact that you are under 30. My God, that's, <laughs> you know. A few years ago until we get there. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen that. Um, so, all right, but that's good though, because I, I want to, then the, the fact that you guys are around the same age actually is really good because it, the, the question would apply to you as well. Um, you see everything that's going on in our industry right now. Our own place just had massive uh, layoffs with incredible people who ended up um, losing their jobs. We, we've seen consolidation among newspapers across uh, the country in terms of lower and lower staff. Places like my old place at Sports Illustrated just basically being gutted by the second. Um, you know, again, you're in your mid late twenties, Josh, you're very talented. You want to have a long career in this profession. Where is your optimism right now in terms of one, if you, if you, if you believe that you, this can be your career long-term heading forward. And then secondly, um, what do you hope to be doing five or 10 years from now? What, what for you would be an ideal job? So let's take the first one, just in terms of sort of, are you an optimist about this are you pessimistic are you a realist where do you stand about your the prospects of being in this profession heading forward i mean there i don't think there's a sense of optimism for sure I and mean, you just kind of look all over uh i mean whether it be the athletic digitally or, or really anywhere papers 
um, you know, the traditional route of, you know, covering, you know, s- small market high school sports and trying to climb your way up to, to colleges and the pros. I mean, there really isn't any, any stability. And, and you, it's like, you know, you get asked to, um, you know, speak at, you know, whether it be your, your old college or, you know, try to take a mentorship role with, you know, young journalists. And, you know, I'm not that far advanced into my career myself, like what you said, just in the, you know, the mid 20s. Um, but when you give them advice, it's like, man, you're you're kind of stepping into a situation that you're 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 already kind of down in the count for a baseball reference. It's like you're already down 0-2 and, you, get, you know, you have the odds stacked up against you to succeed. Um, but I mean, if that's still your passion, you, I mean, you can't, you can't really, I guess it would depend on how dedicated you are in chasing it. I mean, you have to, to grind. It's, it's really the biggest thing. And I'm sure you've experienced this everywhere you've been in your career. We can both relate. It's, I mean, you're going to have to network and you're going to have to grind because I mean, it's not easy. There's really no one certain path to, to getting it. I mean, like what we've mentioned before, it's the, you know, there's no traditional route of, you know, here, I'll get in the paper as an aggregator and, you know, you know, fixing standings and stats and, uh, you know, the back pages of the paper and I'll work my way up to, you know, hopefully my, the editor will give me a gig of covering a high school event and, you know, bring me on full time. It's those, those really aren't the days anymore. It's, uh, you've got to be as versatile as possible. You've got to aggregate, you've got to get ready to get out there. Um, in, in our situation, you know, luckily, you know, as big of a company as we are, and despite the layoff, I mean, for, I mean, it seems like we're still going to be pretty dedicated in covering these teams that, you know, we, that all these fans love and, you know, hopefully sports will be back at some point. Uh, you know, I still have my second questions about the second wave and, you know, everything else coming up later this year, but, um, definitely not optimism, but I mean, if you're willing to grind and, you know, push yourself out there in terms of chasing really the biggest thing and the, the, the networking, I think is, is the, the number one thing is that if you're able to, to, you know, really hone in on that aspect, uh, you know, the odds might be stacked up, but things might work in your favor down the line. Josh, what do you hope, uh, if, if, if I can give you your dream job 10 years from now, what would it be? A dream job? You know, the, the, I think the, the passion has always revolved around, uh, beat writing Richard I think back to to college days and uh, you know I didn't go to the biggest school I went to Illinois State they're part of the Missouri Valley Um, you know basketball decent conference football they're they're kind of that D1A Um, but you know even back then I kind of knew I wanted to be a beat writer and uh, I I would uh, you know I'm kind of telling on myself here but I I really didn't care about class I, I wanted to be at practice and I wanted even even back then, you know, just several years ago, I, I knew I wanted to be around the team and I, I wanted to be on top of the team. Literally, I wanted to knew, know what was going on at almost every single moment. And I, I knew that was my passion. And, you know, that's followed me to, you know, several steps throughout my career. Obviously, first um, being a college beat writer at a, a small paper before joining the Athletic with the Packers and now the Rays. Um, and I still think that's going to be what I want to do uh, five, ten years down the line. Uh, to, to what point, you know, I've got some NFL experience and, and now baseball. I mentioned earlier I've played basketball, so, you know, covering the NBA would um, uh, maybe be kind of like a, a little fulfillment on, on my end. But um, I think it's going to be beat writing. And I know in terms of, you know, 
places aren't traveling as much when it comes to beat writing and um but but still there's still going to be i think that daily kind of need of you know fans want to know what's going on with their team and uh, i think beat writing has always kind of been that that one forefront of you know all these things are changing but you still have beat writers across all the leagues and i, I think from that end you know 10 years from now i'm not going to be you know, luckily, still not into my 40s yet. So um, when you when you think about it that way, I think I'll still be ready to grind uh, even five, ten years down the line. Yeah, the 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 the, the irony is we, there's never been a time more where people crave information more. Um, and so, yeah, I'm an optimist in that sense. I, I don't think there will ever be a time where there is not there are not reporters covering teams on a, for lack of a better word, day to day basis. The the question will be you know, what those outlets are and can you sort of sustain a, a livable wage doing it. But, uh, but, uh, but I have optimism there. I just, I think people crave stories and information um, too much for that to, to go away. Josh, is there anything else you want to add before we, um, before we wrap up on this? No, I think, I think that, that was it right there, Richard. I think you think about what separates us from, uh, you know, the fans or, you know, the media and the fans and then the front office, the managers, the players, uh, we have access to those experts and, you know, we get paid to to play. I mean, I mean, they get paid to play. Uh, we get paid to, to watch them play the game. Um, and you know, we aren't really the experts. I mean, the, the, the people in those front offices, they're, I mean, they're the experts and what, what we're experts at is extracting that information and, trying to, you know, write it in a clear and concise, or concise manner to all these fans that care. Because, I mean, like what you said, I think fans do crave information. And to what point are they, you know, willing to um, pay for information? Or, you know, how are they going to go about getting that? I mean, everything's trending digitally. So I think that's where we stand um, with a slight advantage. So uh, from that aspect, I, you know, there is hope for, like what you said, um being in the business but you know pleasure to be on and really uh like what we said earlier it's it was about spreading awareness with that post and um i think you know being on here i mean all the all the more i mean we see that the analytic of you know it, it reached 1.5 million people and however many people retweeted and shared but um bigger takeaway is that this happens more frequently than we think and um in a way was able to hope help and represent those people and, and spread awareness like what you said. And I think we'd do that here. Yeah. I appreciate uh, you coming on Josh. Josh Tolentino covers the Tampa Bay Rays for the athletic. And before covering the Rays, he covered the Packers um, for our outlet and also worked at the Kansas city star Chicago sometimes. And as he said, a proud graduate of Illinois state, uh, Josh, stay safe down there in florida and uh and definitely don't be a stranger man thanks uh so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast yep thanks so much richard i'll have my mask on on friday at the trop and you know we'll see if the uh, baseball can get underway here in the next month all right back in the studio my thanks to Rian walker mike reese and josh tolentino for their times uh totally recommend following them on their social media platforms if you want to get more of their work uh prior episodes prior to this one michael lee our senior NBA writer of The Athletic, and Robert Klemko on uh, a number of interesting topics, including for Michael Lee, uh, what, it, what it will be like covering the NBA 
um, as they head into the bubble and Robert Klemp go on switching from sports to news during COVID-19. Prior to that, J.A. Donde, uh, the director of sports journalism at the Medill School at Northwestern, obviously a longtime ESPN or an L.A. Times guy, just sort of talking about what young people are thinking about regarding going into sports journalism today. Prior to that, we had a uh, four people, uh, Lisa Wilson, The Athletic, ESPN's Michael Eves, Raina Cash of Savannah Morning News and Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett, basically on uh, a long topic on sort of the nexus of race and sports and what's been going on in the, in the country. Um, they were phenomenal. And then just go down the list of people who've been on Burger McFarland, Tom Verducci, um, uh, Sean McDonough, uh, and Scott Van Pelt, and sort of goes on and on and on if you're interested in this kind of conversation please leave us uh, a uh, five-star review and a comment that's how the uh, the podcast continues all right this was a long one if you stuck around to the end i really really appreciate it um thank you very much for that again thanks to uh sean cherry and patrick antonetti for producing this podcast thanks to everybody cadence 13 from chris corcoran to spencer brown to john mcdermott uh, we will probably be back uh, a week plus from now. I'm going to take uh, a week off. It's uh, been a long sort of stretch and, uh, and could use uh, a bit of, a, I think, a, a media deacceleration or media cleanse. So, um, so we will be back, but it probably will be more than a week. As always, I really appreciate you guys listening. Stay safe out there, and thanks again for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.